Hey there, guys, gals, bays, and everyone in between. Welcome back for a new episode of Dark and Devious. Yes, welcome back, folks, uh, which I love using folks because it's all inclusive, just like your intro. Mm-hmm. I like using folks and y'all a lot. <laughs> I, I love um, that's like the um, y'all means y'all like, <laughs> mm-hmm. yes, like and that everybody, much. no matter where they fit in on any kind of the spectrum, uh, you are welcome. So thank you. You are all welcome here at Dark and Devious. Of course. Um, Thank you all for tuning in again. This is uh, a big week. We've got a full-length episode for you that I have been working very, very hard on. Uh, I love it when I can get a a full book on one of our cases and, like, actually read it cover to cover. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. it feels really good. I feel like a real hardcore researcher when I do that. So yeah, when you actually like read and take notes as you go. And yeah, other than yeah. it's like, I found a few articles that I'm going to throw together, which <laughs> is also handy. And it is quality research. Yes, too. that is that is real research. Uh, it just is sometimes a little more difficult when you're like, oh, I need to get this detail. Or like if you've read a whole bunch of articles and you're like what article said that? Did I imagine that? And then you have to yeah. like dig through them all. Mm-hmm. It's just so much nicer when you've got like one good solid resource that's yeah. been already vetted. Yeah. So I'm excited about that today. Yeah. Um, I can't wait to hear it. Um, I, it's been a while since we've had a full episode, although the past few minis have been, could have been full lengths themselves. Right. And they have um, been very interesting. Yes. Um, speaking of, we both have developments from previous things we've talked about do you want to tell yours first sure um so probably a month or two ago I mentioned how they suspected there was a serial killer in Austin because um they kept finding young male bodies in Ladybird Lake um like same same like demographic basically same location of dumping spots. Were they? Did they all have like a similar look to them? Like, did they have a, like they're all one? Like they're all, like they all have brown hair or. Something. I know that they're all either white or Latino. Okay. Um, Which you know in Austin really is about half of the male population there. I'm yes, sure. very much so. <laughs> and like, you know, it's also very like because Austin is so heavily like white and Latin, there's a lot of people, not that like race matters, but like I either start off thinking that they're Hispanic, but then I find out they're actually Caucasian or they, I think they're Caucasian, they're actually Hispanic. Um, so yeah, so like maybe they're this person, if it is a serial killer, is targeting one specific 
community and they're just you know it just happens to be yeah um but um just before our last recording of last week's episode they found another body in the lake that is that is crazy like there's no way that there are this many just accidental right I, i just don't feel like young men are just tripping into ladyburg lake right and isn't coming out and saying that there's a serial killer and you know they're also not giving details you know saying like they were all death by strangulation or they were all shot like they're not saying any of that information they're just letting the public know that hey we found a body um that is really interesting that they're not saying specifically what the cause of death is well if they're thinking that maybe it might be a serial killer maybe they're keeping that close to chest because that's a detail that only the killer would know. Fair. So they, I know they do that often with cases where they'll, they won't say like, maybe they'll say that a person was shot to death, but they won't say that they were strangled first. Oh you know? yeah. Because that's something that only the killer might know. And then if you have a suspect in custody and they're, they're saying like, yes, I did it or whatever. And then they're like, okay, well, spell out what you did step by step. And if they don't mention that, then it's like, oh, well, this person isn't our. It's a false confession. Yeah, false confession. Someone or someone that just wants attention. Mm-hmm. Or they're that, trying so to cover for somebody. Yeah. Um, that's very interesting and very scary. So stay safe, Austin. Yes, please um, do stay safe, Austin. I hope oh. they find out who or what is responsible for all these and that there are no more bodies found I know. in the lake. Um, but speaking of bodies and lakes, we just found out since our last episode about finding bodies in Lake Mead, since the waters are receding from uh, such drought that they've been having out there, Uh, A third body has been found in Lake Mead. And this one, they did not give any details about, you know, is this another barrel body? Is this, uh, you know, someone who's been there for a very long time? Or is it someone who might have drowned? Like, they didn't give anything away. Just, it's funny because the articles all basically just recap all the other things that have been said the last time they talked about bodies and like yeah me. and then they just added but then a third one's been found huh and, interesting and i actually had a really fun and wonderful moment with a customer the other day where we were talking you know as we do in minnesota we talk about the weather it was the funniest thing i i the customer before had just moved here to minnesota from the seattle area and Eventually, we, we got on the topic of weather and climate, and um, the first customer left, and then the lady behind her had, uh, you know, we were talking more about climate, so less about like, oh, what a beautiful day it is, or like, I love the fact that we get four seasons here in Minnesota, mm-hmm. <laughs> but more to like climate change, which was like kind of a nice, thoughtful conversation. And I was like, oh yeah, like, did you hear about Lake Mead? And the fur and her face just like lit up. And she was like, the bodies, right? And it was like, yes, I found a true crime uh, sister here <laughs> just at, at the grocery store. And uh, 
yeah, we we both like kind of quick traded our our theories that of where these bodies are coming from. And awesome. I thought that was that was a really sweet moment. And I hope that someday that lady discovers this episode of this podcast and gets to that was hear, that hear was your me. moment to market us, Chris. I did. I did tell her about I, I did tell her about the podcast. So okay. okay. I hope she I hope she catches this. Awesome. That's so cool. I love it when I find that like sometimes um, it's like when I'm working with high school seniors doing like the uh, college applications, you know, sometimes like there's like working away at it. So you wind up just like making small talk. And there's been a few times where um, the podcast has come up and then I'm just like talking about murder with a 17 year old. I'm like, oh, is this appropriate? Oh, that's fun though. I mean, as long as it happens organically and you're not forcing it, right? Um, that's I feel like that's acceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, very cool. And then speaking of the podcast and marketing it out there, I just need to thank my husband who went to a coffee meetup and got us a few more Texas listeners. They Yay. downloaded it and started listening right away and texted him about it and they're like your husband's heavy (laughs) (laughs) which is funny because you're literally the lightest person I know I think um but yeah physically light mentally pretty heavy yeah (laughs) um so yeah hello Texans who are tuning in and then also I love that we have some more countries to welcome um we now have listeners in Hong Kong and Guyana so Hello, Guiana and Hong Kong. Welcome. Glad you're here. Yes, that is so, so cool. I always love uh, expanding the dark and devious family across the globe. Yes. Working our way. Uh, well, that is super cool. Um, and also, a thank you just to everybody for bearing with us this week. We've had a pretty uh, difficult to schedule week, but we finally got it. Um, did... You have, besides all the true crime stuff um, and all of our work stuff, did you have anything else going on this week? Um, there are some things going on and there are some events happening in my personal life, but I want to wait until it's closer to the actual event because folks down here in Austin, Texas can actually attend and see me on stage that's right maybe even meet me um but i will wait until that's closer okay all right that's fair uh but nothing else you want to mention nothing nothing major happened in your life since the last episode or anything oh i had a birthday (laughs) (laughs) you're Uh, like yeah yeah whatever that's already done i was like what the hell happened chris i don't know what you're talking about I was like, I got attacked by a dog months ago. Nothing has happened to me. <laughs> oh my gosh, um, I forgot about that. Yeah, that was wild. Um, yeah, my birthday was last uh, Saturday. So we could go today. I got a new tattoo. And it's um, a pretty cool tattoo as well. Like, I, I really loved it when you, you sent me a picture of it. Because I like was like, happy birthday. Like, what are you doing? And then you like this. Yes. Um, so for our listeners, um, maybe I can put it on the, on the Instagram and feed yeah, page, why not? but it's a planchette from the Ouija board with an all seen eye in the middle of it. And then your typical sun and moon and stars. And then I have the words yes and no. 
And then when I go back for my free touch up, I'm going to get the, uh, the word goodbye, which will not be free, but I'll get the word goodbye um, centered underneath the planchette because, you know, whenever you're doing a Ouija session, you cannot end without asking the spirit's permission first. Um, and first you have to ask, like, is it okay to close? And they will tell you yes or no. And if they say yes, then um, they'll go to yes. And then you'll say goodbye. And then the planchette moves to the word goodbye. Um, I was explaining all this to my coworkers yesterday. And I could, there is one of my coworkers where she is definitely, I mean, you can tell she's, she's pretty Christian. And I could tell she was like, questioning me <laughs> she was like there's only one ghost the holy ghost which not to offend anybody but I can tell like that she was like uh boy what are you talking about like she um, kind of had like a one a one yeah she wasn't open but anyways no I love my tattoo um I'm super excited about it and I can't wait to share it with everyone yay oh well besides work this week I also uh on a whim, I I went to the hardware store and I bought a fire pit and a hammock. Oh, fun. Uh, so I'm super stoked. Uh, thankfully, the fire pit was already assembled. Uh, <laughs> but I, I tried to uh, put this hammock together. I like took everything out of the box and I looked at the instructions and I'm like, I do not understand that at all. Um, so I'm going to have a little help this weekend, I think, assembling that. Cool. Very cool. Um, that's my goal after this. <laughs> well, help. Welcome to home ownership ish. Yeah. Um, because um, nothing will bring you and your partner together like buying things from IKEA and then assembling them. <laughs> it will make or break you. There's been times where my husband and I were like, "Yay, we did it!" And there's been times where I just like was I just stomped away because I was pissed. Um, <laughs> so yay, enjoy the journey. <laughs> thank you well uh speaking of journeys should we continue on to the main part of our episode yes i think we've waited long enough this week so let's get to it all right let's do it all right patrick are you finally ready for <laughs> this grand episode i i am ready <laughs> <laughs> you're like okay how many times is it gonna ask me if i'm ready? <laughs> Uh, well, then I will just dive right into it then. So let's go swimming. Yeah. <laughs> While there's still lakes. I'm <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, we're sorry, Earth. Yeah. Now, when you think of Detroit, lots of things come to mind. The auto industry, Motown music, and pizza. the rest. Pizza? Really? The, like Detroit style pizza is a thing? Oh, it's a big thing, Chris. Okay. Look it up when we're done with this. Now I feel bad that when I was there, I didn't have pizza. Like, <laughs> I, by the way, I think Detroit is a super cool city, and like even like even with its reputation, uh, I and like I feel like it's on the upswing. It is very much. I'll, and, I'll be there uh, September thirtieth. Uh oh, you know what? I just remembered that there is there's like a stadium there and i think it's like little caesar's stadium oh that like, that I, makes sense so there we go there uh little caesar's is detroit pizza oh that's so funny um well aside from all these 
great things we associate with Detroit. Um, we also think about uh, the Rust Belt and kind of like the um, post uh, economic collapse, you know, mm-hmm, or like yeah. or like a lot of jobs like getting trekked overseas and kind of just hollowing out a lot of these communities and and leaving them kind of a shell of what they were. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, indeed, the, the Detroit area is a world where both fabulous wealth spurred on by the success of auto executives can live side by side with the crumbling tenement housing developments occupied by the desperate and forgotten of the changing fortunes of the city. But just like any major city, there are parts of affluence and comfort where it feels like nothing bad can happen. Oakland County, Michigan used to be one of those places. Oakland County is part of the Detroit metropolitan area and is home to over 1.2 million people as of the 2020 census. They also hold the distinction of being one of the top 10 wealthiest counties in the entire country. Wow. The area is known for its ties to the biggest auto manufacturers in the United States, providing good paying jobs as well as catering to the ultra rich of the same industry. Surely a community like this would have felt like a safe place to raise a family but in the 1970s, that image was shattered. So I think this is a really interesting part of the of that area, just because, yeah, you've got people living in McMansions and they are also living not that far away from like the people who like worked in the auto plants. Because right. remember there used to be a time where there was like an effort to like make sure that everybody had like a good paying job and they could afford a house and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people who had these um, like really stable auto industry jobs lived uh, actually not that far away from their, their bosses at the top. Right. Yeah. It's, it reminds me of like Homer Simpson and Mr. Burns. <laughs> Like there's this huge mansion, but just down the street is your employee who's like living paycheck to paycheck. (laughs) Now, between February of 1976 and March of 1977, four children were kidnapped and murdered, all attributed to the same killer. Each child was taken from their neighborhood and strangely enough, in close proximity to major holidays. All of the children came from seemingly average families, which made the crimes that much more shocking. It was the crime that could happen to you and your family, and it didn't seem to have any rhyme or reason to who the victims were. When the kidnapper saw an opportunity, he took it. What resulted was one of the largest manhunts in Michigan history, and uh, the case became attributed to the babysitter killer, or more appropriately, the Oakland County child killer. Oh, I don't think I know this. I'm glad this is one you don't know. And this well, is- Well, I don't I- think. It might get familiar, but okay. so far I'm not recognizing it. 
Well, and I, uh, oh, and there was also a third nickname. It was, it was like the snow murders or something because they all happened in winter months when there was snow on the ground. Interesting. Yeah. And, and like, they were like the bodies would be placed in, like in the snow. I mean, Hmm. it seems like kind of a, I don't know, kind of like a like a lame connection to make. Like it's yeah. not like they're using snow in their killing or something. I don't know. It just doesn't seem to doesn't grab you. No. Um now and and the reason why uh why I or this was originally on my radar is because I was at work at the bookstore one day and this book was in one of the boxes that I opened again and yeah this happened before this is a, this works out worked out great um and that book is today's source for the episode and I have it right here it's called The Kill Jar by J. Rubin Appleman now Appleman takes on the incredibly difficult and heavy case and weaves it with his own troubled past growing up in the same area at the same time of the kidnappings and murders. And indeed, at one time, one of the victims could have been him. Ooh. So it's very, I thought it was very cool how he weaved his own personal storyline into it without it seeming like, like it forced. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, so, which I think is a really uh, impressive thing to do. And it's very clear that he's a very gifted writer and made this book really like I devoured this book um when I I was actually a couple weeks ago um my dad and I drove down to Kansas City to um, um see my family for my cousin's wedding and this was and like I'm one of those people who can actually read in the car <laughs> oh. so I I I almost read the whole thing on the um between like the journey there and back so. very cool it must be i must be intriguing yeah it was it was quite a page turner so when appleman was seven years old in the 1970s he was allowed to go to the local drugstore by himself this was still the era when kids roamed the streets after school or during the day in the summertime with their friends and didn't come home until it was time for dinner mm-hmm. the man who tried to grab the boy had been posing as a security guard. He wore a blazer and and prowled the aisles of the store as if patrolling. And when he saw the young boy attempting to snatch some bubble gum, he zeroed in on him. The gum was returned to the shelf, but the man still followed him out into the parking lot where where he got into his car. Minutes later, the man followed Appleman and into his neighborhood. So he took off for home and this this guy followed him in his car right uh and when he got close the the driver threw open the passenger side door and reached out to try and grab him but luckily he was able to escape but that sad scenario uh had happened to many had happened many other times before and even resulted in assault or, in the cases we discuss today, murder. While in the book, he searches for answers as to who the killer truly is, he uncovers a network of suspicious characters 
down a rabbit hole that leads in every different direction. On February 15th, 1976, the day after Valentine's Day, 12-year-old Mark Stebbins was attending a gathering at the local American Legion Hall in his hometown of Ferndale, Michigan. So this was something it was like his mom's work friends or whatever were having a party. So it was like a bunch of adults. Okay. Um, so the party, it was mostly adults. It probably didn't really appeal to Mark that much. You know, no, it's not like you want to spend your time hanging out with your mom's friends. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, he hung around for a little bit. Um, but around 1.30 in the afternoon, he he told his mother that he was going to go home to watch some TV. I mean, obviously, way more appealing to a kid. Yeah, that's fair. And I think this was on, it was on a weekend day. So I'm hoping that there were like some good cartoons on at least or something. Yeah, it's not like today where it's just all trash TV. Or, or like infomercials all day. Yeah, yeah. Like get to a certain point. Um, so, and, and this wasn't a location that was super far away or anything. Cause this was all like local. Mm-hmm. And so his mom didn't think anything of it. Like this was a totally normal thing for, for her kid to do. Um, but then when, uh, Mark had not returned home by 11 PM, his mother called the police. Indeed, this was the worst case scenario. Mark Stebbins was a small boy, only about four foot, eight inches tall and weighing in at about a hundred pounds. He was a seventh grader at Lincoln junior high and was considered a good, albeit quiet student. He had come from a divorced family and lived with his mother and was considered by some a little bit of a loner. But what someone saw on that cold February day wasn't an innocent young child trying to get home. They saw a defenseless prey that they could easily take advantage of. When you, when I think about how small Mark Stebbins is, I, I just think about like how defenseless he, he would be when faced against like a full grown adult. Right. And for me to, I'm thinking along, I'm thinking about like the type of person that goes out and they're looking for someone who is small and defenseless and especially a child Mm -hmm. is a real piece of work. Yes. Now the, the Stebbins family spent four traumatic days without answers as authorities, family, and friends searched for Mark to no avail. On February 19th, 1976, Mark's lifeless body was found by a businessman named Mark Bodigheimer. There's a a few really difficult names in this, so I'm going to do my best. Yeah, try your best. (laughs) Mr. Bodigheimer left his office at around 11.45 a.m. to go to the drugstore in the New Orleans Mall at 10 Mile and... uh, or at 10 Mile and Greenfield Roads. I had to think there for a second. There's a lot of like 10 Mile Road, like like roads that are just named for how long they are. Uh, that's weird. I, I, you know, I guess it's a Michigan thing. 
because <laughs> uh that Eminem movie eight mile right never saw it but it's a thing right I don't know. Okay. You're no help. <laughs> um, but like, yeah, I'm not going to go on a tangent about Eminem right now. Please don't. <laughs> uh, now, as he w- made his way across the parking lot, something caught his attention. At first, it looked like a mannequin wearing a blue jacket. But as he got closer, he realized it was something more grim he had stumbled upon the body of Mark Stebbins. Now, another witness later came forward saying that he had been walking his dog in that area around 9.30 that that morning, and there had been no sign of the boy then. That meant that Mark had been left at the drop-off spot sometime in a roughly two-hour and 15-minute time window and had been boldly placed in the middle of the morning in broad daylight. Now, upon examining the body, it was revealed that Mark had died from asphyxiation through smothering rather than strangulation, Hmm. as as there were no marks on the body to indicate that. Uh, The uh, the determination was that his mouth and nose were covered, a technique in true crime jargon known as burking. So I also wanted to give that a little context because I thought it was an interesting little tidbit. So the term burking comes from um so this was like the official definition it's the crime of murdering a person uh, ordinarily by smothering for the purpose of selling the corpse oh the term derives its name from the method william burke and william hare the scottish murder team of the 19th century use that it's so that's what they used to kill their victims during the westport murders uh which was a body selling racket for the purpose of dissection so yes when schools Um, needed oh do you know a little bit about this i know all about this um (laughs) my moment to shine men needed bodies and grave digging was a crime so there were guards at graves uh or grave robbing at least yes yeah yeah, grave robbing um (laughs) so body snatching essentially was illegal so uh burke and hare would get people incredibly intoxicated take them back and one of them would sit on the person's chest to force air out while the other person would be pinching their nose shut and holding their mouth closed and then they would say that like, oh, this poor a beggar we found and take it and sell the bodies. Yeah. Well, and then, and that way it, it you know, there aren't, because when you, if you're strangled or choked or something and whatever is, is putting pressure on your neck is going to leave a mark. Yeah. yeah. And so this way it didn't leave that obvious mark. So it's like, yeah, you could just claim be like, oh, they must've just up and died or like they drank themselves to death or something. Yeah, a lot of time these people were alcoholics too. So mm-hmm. it like wasn't wasn't like a big shock. Yeah, it's it's really an interesting little side note and maybe we'll have to cover that one of these days. So little little true crime history in there today. Yes. Now there were also ligature marks on Mark Stebbins' Uh, neck, wrists, and ankles from being bound at some point during his captivity. So I guess the marks on his neck didn't indicate that he had been strangled that way, but 
um, but that he had been tied up or you know, maybe some... a bag was tied around his head. Something. Yeah, uh, lots of different options there. Uh, but the ligatures were a part of of the evidence that was that was discovered on his body. So there was also a small wound on the back of his head. Uh, so the imprint of two perfect circles side by side. Uh, so that, that those two like little circle marks on the back of his head also had happened like early on in his captivity because they were able to tell that his body had already started healing. Okay. Uh, so it must have been like, it, it, it sounds like it was like a bruise imprint kind of okay. so that something had hit him in the back of the head um, and that his body had already started um, the repair there. So then there's, of course, the most upsetting detail, though, uh, and that was that uh, that there was evidence that he had been sexually assaulted as well. And now this detail was not released to the press initially, um, but is revealed much later. Mm -hmm. Now, whoever had taken Mark was likely a pedophile, and this would not have been his first offense. Now, no one was charged with Mark's death, and many, I'm sure at the time, were convinced that his murder was an isolated incident. But then in December of that same year, just days before Christmas, 12-year-old Jill Robinson disappeared. Jill lived in Royal Oak, Michigan, which is pretty much the next town to the north of Ferndale, where Mark Stebbins was taken. I'm sorry, did you say how old she was? Did I miss uh, that? She was 12. 12, another 12-year-old. 12 yeah, uh, I think Mark was, was he 11? Oh, no, yeah, he was 12. Um, yeah, so the, and all the victims are kind of in this preteen Got yeah. age range. Um, so like I said, Royal Oak is basically right up the road. It's like the next town over from Ferndale. Mm -hmm. Um, so the, what's interesting, the first two victims seem to have a lot in common. So both were 12 years old. They came from divorced families. Um, uh, both of them were good students, um, but also considered kind of quiet loner types. Um, but whereas That's Mark, sad. I know, I know, like the quiet kid is like, who's going to miss them? It is. Well, kind of, I mean, like in what I'm trying to say is like, uh, like I could see the killer picking up on that. Yeah. I wonder if the killer profiled the kids first. Well, and I mean, all of these kids were at, were walking on their own. Yes. And whereas that's not necessarily an indication that they were loners per se but uh it gave them an it gave an opportunity to whoever the the kidnapper was yeah um now whereas mark had been headed home jill actually took off on her own so prior to her leaving jill had an argument with her mother her mother asked her to help make biscuits for dinner which Jill refused to do. You know what? It's just oh. like, it's like one of those dumb things. It's like, you know, when you're 12, yeah, maybe you, you just don't want to participate. Like maybe you did when you were younger. Right. And, and like, 
your beginning adolescence and your moody and whatnot. Yes. And like what used to be like a fun bonding time is now viewed as like an annoying chore. Yeah. Or like, yeah, I'm sure she was probably like, that's lame. Like, I don't want to do this. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> now the two had butted heads often. And for some reason, this was a particularly bad quarrel for these two. Jill's mother, Carol, uh, in a moment, I'm sure she regretted for the rest of her life told her daughter to leave until she wanted to come back and be a part of the family again. I'm sure she lived with guilt forever. Mm -hmm. And I, from what it sounds like is she was basically like, well, put on your coat, go stand out in the yard and you can come back in when you feel like being a part of this family again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's not like she was like, get lost. You know? Yeah. And that's not, that's not like un unheard of or like a sign of like poor parenting like right a lot of a lot of parents are like go calm down come back when you're ready to talk yeah and uh and you know living in a divorced household um not knowing what the dynamic was like that could also be a source of a lot of discord between like Mm -hmm. parents and kids exactly so i could totally i could totally see the reasoning for why both people in this situation were upset now jill of course she obliged she grabbed her backpack packed up some clothes and a plaid blanket and took off on her bicycle jill would later be spotted by a family friend at a hobby shop on woodward avenue only about four and a half blocks away from home. The next day, she was spotted at Donut Depot on Maple Road early in the morning between 6 and 7 a.m. And that is the last sighting that is recorded of Jill. And of course, this is a time like way before anybody had like security cameras. Like yeah, nowadays, like now there's like, a camera like on every corner. Yeah, and you would probably be able to trace where she went exactly, but... This was, they, you know, this was a neighborhood. This wasn't even, you know, a place as highly trafficked as like a mall or something. Mm-hmm. So her father, Thomas Robinson, did call the police at 11.30 p.m. the night that she left. But of course, we've seen this before. Runaway teens are usually written off um, since the thought is that they usually turn up back home on uh on their own accord right you know so a lot of times cops don't even want to deal with i mean especially at this time period where it it's like oh the last thing they want to do is deal with a runaway because you know like there's like quote unquote real crime going on somewhere else Mm -hmm. and they don't want to devote the resources to it right and that that not saying that that's always the case, but it definitely seems it's that common. That, that was common, especially in the past. Yes. Um, but the Robinson family was not so lucky. They spent Christmas without their daughter. And the day after, December 26, 1976, Jill's body was discovered on the side of I-75 just north of Big Beaver Road near Troy, Michigan. Um, I 
also I forgot to write it in here, but um, her bicycle also turned up. Um, it was behind that hobby store. And oh. I, I believe they found that the um, the day before or something. It was before they discovered her body. They found the bicycle just like mm-hmm. cropped up behind the hobby store. Huh. Now, uh, Jill also has the distinction of being the only victim to suffer a gunshot wound, which was caused by a shotgun blast to the head. Uh, Now, her cause of death was listed as hemorrhage and shock from the gunshot, but the original task force member, Jack Kalbfleisch, suspects that she had been asphyxiated prior to being deposited on the side of the road. His theory is that a jumpy armed killer may have mistaken air escaping from Jill's body as a sign of life. Hmm. And then to make sure that she was really dead, he squeezed the trigger, ensuring that she would not live to identify him. Um, so I, I could definitely picture the, the killer taking a gun with him, uh, you know, and, and these are all really risky places where he leaves bodies. Yeah, I was going to say. And I, I mean, granted, I believe this was either really, really early in the morning or really late at night when this must have happened and um i could imagine like yeah you you bring a gun just in case anybody gets nosy maybe i mean there's lots of reasons why someone like this would bring a gun you Mm -hmm. know you bring it as a scare tactic uh to show that you're in control in case something goes wrong and you don't want your victim to get away in case someone stumbles upon you um people like this have many reasons so who knows why this person felt a particular need Mm -hmm. Um, now the fact that the weapon used was a shotgun adds a likely link to the mark stebbins case so remember those uh two perfect little circle marks left on the back of mark's head Mm -hmm. well they are uh um in the book he claims that they are likely caused by the double barrel of a shotgun pressing roughly against the skin. So I, you could totally see that as a realistic yeah. possibility that forcing someone into a car or anywhere else at gunpoint, yeah. you know, you, you jab them with the, with the, the business end of a gun to get them to do what you want them to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the imprint left on Mark had been left early on. Uh, I think I did mention this earlier where the wound had already shown signs of healing before his death. Now it would not be a stretch to say that the killer may have used his whip- weapon to silence or intimidate his victims. But while the killer was undeniably cruel, there is a bizarre angle to the care of the children. Now, when the bodies of the children were left, they were left to be found. Uh, Mark was by an office park and Jill was out in the open on the side of the road. They were not stowed away or buried like some kind of discarded toy or an incriminating piece of evidence. Uh, they They were placed atop the snow to be found. And furthermore, upon examination during the autopsies, 
It was discovered that the children had been bathed and fed while in captivity. The fact that the children had been cared for, and I say cared for in like quotation marks, mm-hmm. uh, while they were kidnapped is one of the reasons why the killer was given one of his nicknames, the babysitter killer. Which oh, I feel like- I, now I, I was wondering like when the babysitter was going to come into play. And- right. Uh, that's gross. Like, I don't know. I don't like that. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, I'm, I guess I like the tiniest little nugget of, of silver lining is that like, it's not like they were kept in like a cage and uh, like starved while they were also in captivity, but at least they were like, I guess like kind of manicured, you know, like. They yeah, were, but can you, I don't. Yeah. It doesn't make it any better, but. I No, I imagine they were t- terrified the entire time. Mm-hmm. Sadly, it was not long before another Michigan child went missing. On January 2nd, 1977, sticking with the theme of close proximities to holidays, 10-year-old Christine Mihelnik of Berkeley, Michigan, again, now about one town over from the last victim, was taken during the day while she was walking to a neighborhood convenience store to buy a magazine. She had previously not been allowed to go to the store on her own because she had to cross busy 12 mile road. But she begged her mother and because she had done a favor for her mom earlier in the day, she was allowed to go to the store. Again, here we have a child not doing anything out of the ordinary for the time period, just going about their life in their neighborhood and they're plucked off the street. Hmm. Christine, like the others, had divorced parents, and she was seen as shy with not many friends. An opportunity at independence would be natural for a young girl in her position, but sadly, she never made it home from the store. So you imagine, yeah, that would probably be like kind of a, I don't know, like a confidence booster. Yeah. Get to go out on your own. Your mom's letting you walk further than she normally would let you yeah like and and also it's like like yeah mom and dad are divorced maybe i've got some some stuff going on in in my life you know because you're the kid of a of a divorced you know of a divorced family yeah and that can that can make a big difference just like Mm -hmm. small things like that Mm mm-hmm Now, her mother, Deborah, knew it shouldn't take long for her to return and from the store. And after a half hour, she called the police, which, I mean, in this case, kudos to you, Deborah, for kind of like reacting in a big way to like very quickly. Uh huh. Because when a child goes missing, every second counts. Yes. Um, And I, th- I think like that's all you really could have done in this situation is try and get to the police as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. So yeah, her worst nightmare had become a reality. Now, parents were already on edge in this area because of what had happened to Jill Robinson just a few miles away. 
And remember, this was like a week or or so after Jill Robinson's body had been found. That's fast. It's it's the the quickest time between victims, and it just it, it seems kind of extraordinary, really, that that uh, whoever's responsible responsible would just go straight into another one so quickly. Mm-hmm. So there were, uh, so the fears that this was a worst case scenario really began to settle in. In fact, another student at Christine School, Pattengill Elementary School, briefly went missing shortly after Christine had been reported missing. For 20 harrowing minutes, the entire school went into full-on search mode, but the child was eventually found on school grounds. Still, after such nerve-wracking incidents, parents lined up to meet their children after school, children who only days before had felt safe to walk home. Meanwhile, back at home, Christine's two younger brothers couldn't help but ask, when their big sister was coming home. The uncertainty for Christine's family dragged on for 19 days until a familiar pattern came to fruition. On January 21st, 1977, on a quiet dead-end street called Bruce Road in Franklin Village, Christine's frozen body was discovered. Now, Christine's body was placed on top of a snowbank on a quiet neighborhood street just a few towns over from where she lived. Mail carrier Jerome Wozni was driving on the street that had been part of his route for the last eight years when he was drawn to the bright blue color of Christine's coat in the snow. When he discovered that there was a body covered in that clothing, he ran back to his truck and then called for help. State Police Sergeant Robert Robertson oversaw the removal of Christine's remains and Sergeant Joseph Kreese headed the task force created to work the case. 35 officers from nine different departments were assigned to the case, which was the largest cooperative police effort in county history. Now, Christine's body had spent the night in freezing conditions, effectively freezing her in the position that she had been placed in, on her back with her knees drawn up. She was so frozen that they actually had to wait until the next day to perform her autopsy. Like they literally had to thaw. Wow. So it was, it was very cold out. Yeah. Now, when she was found, she was wearing the same clothing that she had been uh, last been seen in. And there was no sign of violence, sexual or otherwise. Uh, She had been smothered just like Mark Stebbins and likely Jill Robinson. Now, as for Wozni, he was an unassuming man with lightly developed social skills. And for a moment, even he fell under suspicion. He was nervous during the interview process and avoided eye contact and was generally quiet throughout his questioning. Also, superficially, his home was packed with trinkets, which some read as indicating an obsessive personality. In addition to the extremely superficial and circumstantial foibles, um, there was the fact that he 
or that his footprints were the only footprints leading to the body. Um, but a faint snowfall from the previous night was likely to blame for any covering of footprints. Yeah, and I'm sure it's also it's the Midwest. I'm sure it was windy. Yeah, I mean, it's it only takes a little bit of blowing snow to completely erase any sign that you had walked there before. Yeah. Especially if it was fresh snow. Now he was quickly cleared of involvement. Uh, I mean, also like think it would not have been very smart to leave a victim's body on your mail route. Any like it, that doesn't make any sense. No, not at all. And also like his behavior, like him acting kind of like weird and withdrawn. Like the dude just found a body, like right. a body of and, a child. And that was probably pretty traumatic for him. So and interview questions are probably re-traumatizing him. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, maybe we could, we could cut this kind of quirky mail carrier a little bit of snack, slack. Right. And, I'm, and I'll, I feel like we all would feel weird in a similar situation. Now, while the mailman theory was a definite bust, others were reading into the location of where the body had been left. Now, throughout the set in the 1970s, a Detroit area psychiatrist named Bruce Danto had made a name for himself by commenting publicly on serial killers. So he was kind of like the resident authority on criminal minds, basically. Okay. Now, the fact that Christine had been dropped off on Bruce Lane uh, was very likely a coincidence, but the correlation was just too irresistible for the local press to imagine that the killer somehow was using this location as some kind of statement or challenge to Danto. Pretty, pretty far stretch, that, right? That's a, that's a big reach. Yeah. Now, still, others even suspected that the psychiatrist himself might even be the murderer and that this was some kind of sly calling card. Mm-hmm. Now, this, however, seems like it seems like a supervillain origin story. Like he studies killers in order to become the perfect killer. Right. But, you know, this is a perfect example of what happens when the public is scared and left with little to no information. Mm -hmm. They start pointing the fingers everywhere in every direction until something sticks. Right. So uh, next we have 11-year-old Timothy King. And he was actually a a pretty popular, bright-eyed kid with the kind of shaggy hair that was popular at the time. Like, think David Cassidy, you know, that, that and it, the pictures of him, like, it just looks so freaking cute. Yeah. He was well-liked, athletic, and had an outgoing personality. He was from Birmingham, Michigan, which again, just up the road from where the other children had lived. In fact, A major thoroughfare, which is that Woodward Avenue, goes right through most of these communities. And it's like a big, like, boulevard type street. So um, this is like a main drag. Mm -hmm. 
Um, it was March 16th, 1977, the day before St. Patrick's Day, when Timothy asked his sister, Catherine, to lend him 30 cents so that he could run to the Hunter Maple Pharmacy, which was only three blocks away, for some candy. It was an absolutely normal, everyday thing for a kid like Timothy to do. He left with the change his sister gave him and his skateboard and his football. So a clerk at the pharmacy, Amy Walters, uh, sold Timothy some candy around 8.30 p.m., after which he went out through a back door into the darkened parking lot. Now, somewhere between the pharmacy and home, Timothy disappeared. That evening, everyone in the King family had something going on. The parents had gone out to dinner. One older brother was babysitting uh, while the other was rehearsing a play. Catherine had her own social plans to go out that evening and had agreed to leave the front door open for her brother uh, for when he returned from the store since she would have left by then. This would have been the first time Timothy would have been home alone, even if it was for a short period of time. So when you think about when, when the, the clerk, Amy, uh, sold him the candy bars, or like the candy at 8.30 p.m., mm-hmm. um, his parents returned home at 9 p.m. So he would have only been home <sighs> for like half an hour. Yeah. Like that's like it was a very short time he would have been home alone. Wow. So his parents returned around 9 p.m. and they found the door was ajar, like they, they like it was unlocked. Um, but there was no Tim. The family went into full-on search mode. They called friends and scoured the neighborhood, hoping that they were not living the same nightmare that so many other families had endured. At this point, seven children had turned up murdered in the area within a period of about a year and a half. Now, not all of them are associated with this particular case, but the fact that there was possibly multiple child killers roaming the same area was terrifying to families. Yeah, I can't imagine. That's a scary, like, I mean, I feel like you never hear of more like more than one child going missing at a time like in i mean and in like today's in the, day like age, in the same small rural area yeah I, I mean and this was i mean this is pretty suburban um but this many kids in this short of time that must that that just doesn't make any sense it's yeah it's it's crazy now, by 9.15 the next morning, it was clear that Timothy was not with any friends or family. Someone had taken him. Within a day, over 100 law enforcement officials were on the ground searching for Tim. To the media, all the King family could say was how much they loved their son and missed him. His mother even remarked that they'd have his favorite dinner, Kentucky Fried Chicken, when he came home. Mm. They did their best in their press conferences to try and empathize with whoever had taken their son, asking them to treat him like, like their own brother, but ultimately to send him back to them unharmed. And this was a really smart tactic that they did. Um, they really kind of tapped into their, 
the emotion of the whole situation. And um, they really hoped that the killer or that the kidnapper was listening and would hopefully feel something himself mm-hmm. that like yeah. you you didn't just take uh you know a transient kid off the street like this kid has a family that is that loves him and misses him and just hoping to tug at those heartstrings in order to get him to return uh, their son now all of the attention did generate lots of tips a woman came forward saying that she had seen timothy talking to a man in the parking lot of the pharmacy. The man was described as being between 25 and 35 years old, white with dark, uh, with dark brown hair, cut in a shag style. And he had mutton chop sideburns, a fair complexion, and a husky build. He was driving a late model blue AMC Gremlin with white wall tires, and what the woman described as a white hockey stick stripe down the side of the car. It's kind of like that long. Yeah, a long skinny. Skinny line, and then then it goes up at the end. Gotcha. Uh, Now, the police began to suspect that there may have been more than one man involved in the kidnapping, and that perhaps the individual or individuals responsible had an inherent authority or trust with their victims that allowed them to whisk the children away without much fuss so like remember the at the beginning when the author was talking about um, his own experience with the guy who he thought was a security guard yeah situation like gum right yeah so a situation like that where it's like if you had somebody who was posing as an authority figure that would explain why the you know, these otherwise smart kids who would never willingly go with a stranger might be convinced to go with a stranger. Right. Um, And now also during this time period, while they were searching for Timothy, uh, every single blue gremlin was being inspected. Like everybody was on the lookout for this car. Uh, So if it was a, it was a bad day to, own a gremlin yeah and they were very popular back then yeah it was it was a very like of the time kind of car now unfortunately after a week of hoping and praying for the safe return of their son the king family got the worst news they could ever imagine timothy king's body was found by a motorist in a ditch off of eight mile road in livonia michigan about 21 miles to the southwest of Birmingham, uh, where he had been taken. Even his skateboard was found at the scene about 15 feet away from where Timothy lay. During the autopsy, it was discovered that he had been groomed while in captivity and had even been fed uh, some Kentucky Fried Chicken, which meant that perhaps the killer saw the news press. Yep, had had seen the press conferences and knew that he liked the uh, fried chicken. Hmm. But uh, the saddest discovery was that he too had, um, just like Mark Stebbins, had been sexually assaulted. Um, Though this detail 
was again withheld from the press so it was very you know I guess I could see why that would be one of those things that you wouldn't want to just mention in any old news story yeah yeah Uh, you know because we are talking about children here and um that's you know nobody wants to think of the gross details of of the you know potential last moments of these children's lives right so those are the four official victims of the oakland county child killer Um, after the timothy king murder the killings came to a mysterious halt Every blue AMC gremlin had been scrutinized in the area. Thousands of man hours went into locating a a suspect, but still, despite a Herculean effort, the police came up empty-handed. Did authorities have their story all wrong or did they have their perpetrator figured out early on? A tip line was set up for the Oakland County child killer and thousands of tips poured in. One of them, in fact, one of the first few hundred to be logged, cast suspicion on a man named Christopher Bush. Bush, to put it mildly, is a real piece of work. He was 5'8", 250 pounds, and generally just lived off of daddy's money. Although, like, he had this kind of restaurant service job, which seems really odd for somebody who is the child of wealthy parents. Yeah. Um, But it was sort of just like a, it was like a job that his dad got for him. And probably just to keep him busy or to keep him like. And like, who knows, his dad probably owned the restaurant. And I I feel like his dad did have like an investment stake in the restaurant or something, Mm. something like that. Um. Now, he is a perfect example of how the court system works in favor of the wealthy. He was born to extremely wealthy parents. Uh, His father, H. Lee Bush, was an auto executive at General Motors. So he had money and influence on his side. And at this time period, if you were involved in the higher up process uh, of the auto industry, you were like a God among men because that's where all the jobs came from was the auto Mm -hmm. industry. So um, of, of course uh, they were kind of looked, looked up to in this community. Yeah. Makes sense. Now, Christopher as an adult was still living at his parents' home in Bloomfield, which is just outside of Birmingham. Uh, and he was a child porn addict. He Gross, had mo- yeah. First of all, yeah, he's disgusting, and he. Ugh. The more you learn, just the grosser he gets. So he had multiple molestation charges against him, but it seemed that his parents used their cash and political influence to get their son a light slap on the wrist every time. His parents had posted bond for their troublesome son on several molestation charges and even went so far as to pay off children and their families in order to sweep the misconduct under the rug. That's disgusting. 
And that's the thing. These like these are not good parents. No, they, they're not. It seems like they don't actually care about their children and that they would much that they would rather um just make the whole nasty business just go away by paying people off rather than to actually get their their son like mental help or something like that. Well, also if they're at this like high status, they don't want their name to be tarnished. Exactly. That is the biggest thing is that the the Bush family did not want their good name being dragged through the mud. And boy, Christopher really uh, didn't seem to, to care about that. Now, one of, uh, now one of his victims later, who was later groomed to be a sort of sidekick um, claims that Mrs. Bush came to his neighborhood in a limousine and offered him an envelope full of cash in exchange for his silence. Which is just like, you're like going out late at night in your limousine to like a working family neighborhood to like pay off your son's like molestation. Right. Like, like, Look at your life. Look at your choices here in this situation. Uh-huh. Now, the worst penalty that Christopher Bush ever got for his molestation charges was a $1,000 fine, which is pocket change for the son of an auto executive. Right. And probation. Uh, it also helped that they hired a, a very good attorney, uh, to basically be at their beck and call for every time that Christopher got into trouble. Now, Bush's partner in crime, uh, who was also being interrogated for sexual misconduct, um, his name is Gregory Green. Now, he was not so lucky. He did not benefit from any kind of connections financially or politically. And uh, for that same... um, for the like the same crime uh-huh. that Christopher was was being charged with, he was sentenced to life in prison. So whatever he had been doing was that bad. And yeah. yet you have a rich defendant who gets a thousand dollar fine and probation mm-hmm. and a a defendant who does not have wealth or status. Mm-hmm. And he gets life in prison. That is That's... a pretty stark difference right there. Uh, so yeah, these are drastically different outcomes. Uh, and it's even more absurd when you take into account the damning evidence against Christopher Bush. Uh, and he was just allowed to walk away free. So for That's... start, what were you gonna say? I, I'm just I'm just frustrated. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> rightfully so. For starters, Bush, when asked about his pedophile habits, he described the areas where he would seduce young boys and they matched the exact area where the children had gone missing, Ferndale, Royal Oak, and Berkeley, all along that Woodward Avenue corridor. So it was like, oh, well, where do you operate? And he described the exact area. Was he... Um, so when he was doing pedophilic 
activities do we know is he going after boys or girls um the only thing i ever heard him going out um going after was boys because only the two boys were assaulted mm-hmm. it's and it's just so it it's so weird it the things just get more complicated and convoluted it's very very unusual now uh if he wasn't the killer he was definitely trolling for victims in the exact same area and what vehicle did he use well at his disposal he had a blue chevy vega which was basically chevy's answer to the amc gremlin Mm. uh, which is kind of like the closest copy so you could totally understand if an eyewitness mistook the chevy vega for a gremlin yeah totally makes sense Mm -hmm. now next he admitted that he had a fantasy about kidnapping a boy with with green as his accomplice uh and that they would work opposite schedules so that they there could always be someone with their captive at all times uh and and obviously the whole purpose of this kidnapping fantasy was so that they could molest this boy. That's very messed up. And all like for him to be admitting this to detectives too is kind of weird. Uh, but it just really builds the case against him. Uh, but probably the most, oh, and then uh, when detectives asked what, uh, what he planned to do then uh, when when they were finished, Christopher just went silent and refused to answer the question. So it was kind of like, well, what are um, you going to do after? Yeah. And I, I is like, he didn't want to admit that is like, well, we just would throw him away. Like he's disposable. Yeah. Not how a great is he not. How, how did he not get like much more thorough trial? But probably the most surprising accusation came from Bush's companion, Green. Now, Green pointed the finger at Bush as being the one responsible for the murder of Mark Stebbins. So here he is just like throwing down, being like, yeah, that's your guy. He's the one who killed that kid. Mm -hmm. Now, when Bush was confronted with this accusation, he wholeheartedly denied it and insisted that it was a fantasy to tie up and abuse boys and nothing more. He was then subjected to a polygraph test, which he allegedly passed and no further questioning was was pointed at Christopher Bush. But a 2007 review of the polygraph results, uh, looking for possible misinterpretations of the data or errors, Uh cast, cast doubts on the accuracy even though the findings of that audit are still not available to the public. So the fact and that you, they were like, maybe we should review the results of this polygraph test. And, but then they're like, oh, but we're not going to tell you what the result of the investigation. Yeah. Is. Like what's the point of making it public knowledge if you're not going to give answers? Yeah. It seems very sus to me. Uh, but, and also we know that a lie detector test is not a it's not a perfect no it's not i i actually don't think they should use them 
it's it's really just dumb. there are too many things that like are uncertain mm-hmm. and and you know and then there's always those people who are like really well trained and they can like they can fool a lie detector test yes so i think that to write christopher bush off as a suspect so easily you know based on that polygraph test sounds really foolish mm-hmm. i agree but once again i i really do think that power money you know his name probably swayed things here and and kind of pulled the investigation away from him yeah it definitely did but if you think things ended up all like hunky-dory for christopher bush you'll have to think again in november of 1978 shortly after he had been questioned by the police bush had been left to his own devices while his parents were abroad in europe Uh, and because his father as an auto executive frequently traveled back and forth. Sure. Um, so, you know, when parents are away, Christopher will play. I was going to say when the cat's away, the mouse will play. Yeah, basically. Uh, now one day, uh, when, while the, now one day when the cleaning lady came for her usual duties, she found herself locked out of the house. She contacted Christopher's older brother, Charles, and told him that something didn't feel right. Now, uh, rather than just showing up by himself, uh, Charles actually called the police and to handle the situation. So they, he came with a police officer. And when they finally got uh, access to the house, they found Christopher in his room with a gunshot wound to the head investigators were incredibly quick to call it a suicide despite several suspicious elements first of all a rifle was recovered at the scene placed next to bush's body a rifle that would make a completely impractical suicide weapon because it's so long like you'd have to have like really long arms Mm -hmm. to like be able to fired the gun while it's pointed at your head right it's, it it doesn't make sense and i'm sure this family probably had handguns somewhere like oh yeah they're rich that would have been <laughs> that would have been way more practical the rich people in the mid- midwest of course they have handguns <laughs> uh Now, the crime scene report also said that there was no gunpowder residue on his hands, which is a pretty huge red flag Yeah, uh, that he didn't fire the gun. Yeah, that should have been one of the first things that they looked at as like, hey, this is suspicious because when you fire a gun, it's pretty much impossible to not have some sort of gun residue on your hands from firing the gun. Right. And if it's and a suicide, if, like you don't have time to take off any gloves. And you're not going to be washing your hands afterward either. Yeah. Yeah. Um, then there is the fact that there were four spent cartridges on the ground. And uh, apparently the, uh, the caliber is the same that it, that was used on Christine. So the, Oh, 
so maybe not necessarily the same gun, um, but it is mentioned that it's the same caliber. Mm -hmm. Um, But there is only one hole in the victim's head, you know, but four spent cartridges. Right. Did he have a few test runs beforehand or did someone else have to show that they meant business with him? Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a painting on the wall across from the body that had multiple holes caused by the bullets. So, you know, I, if you're looking to potentially kill yourself, I don't think you would shoot four rounds uh, or like three or four rounds or however many. Yeah, you're not going to test out your gun on a wall. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. And, and even if you did, you would only need to do it once. Right. Uh, there's also the absence of blood spatter at the scene. This is the this is also another huge thing that is just, just makes me think like, um, did you guys actually look at the crime scene at all? Mm-hmm. Uh, now, if you're familiar with film and television, anytime someone is either shoots himself or in the head or is like shot at close range they always have like that huge like blood splatter against the wall Mm -hmm. um like that's that's how it actually goes like if you ever see uh, photos from a suicide scene um there's a lot of blood you've got a lot of blood in your head surprise guys (laughs) there's Um, blood in your body yeah and when you shoot it it goes flying out of the body and uh, there was not the expected huge mess that you would you would think to find um, from somebody who had been shot in the head. Um, so why was the death scene in Christopher Bush's room so devoid of all that of all of that? Had he been totally alone, it would have been far messier. And then right. there, there's the final question of who tucked him into the bed afterward. Uh, So when they found his body, he was actually under a sheet and uh, which is something that you would not have been able to do had you just suffered a a shot to the head. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know why they said this was suicide at first. Yeah. I mean, it was kind of like, oh, well, it's there's the gun right next to the body and, you know, it's a, a single shot to the head. And the fact that he had been under, like, you know, he had been under pressure recently for his molestation charges. I'm sure they were like, oh, he probably uh, was just in, in over his head with uh, um, like his molestation charges and he didn't want to live anymore, which is just, it's like, you guys, you have to look at the actual facts. Right. Like, look yeah. at the scene. Mm-hmm. This is clearly, he was not alone in this room. Yeah. And all it takes is just someone wearing gloves to not leave fingerprints on the gun. You know? Mm-hmm. So still, despite all of this, Oakland County Medical Examiner, Dr. Robert Sillery, ruled Christopher Bush's death a suicide. Now, two years later, though, Dr. Sillery would be investigated by the Attorney General's office 
for providing false autopsy results in an unrelated case. Oh. So he was accused of taking bribes and gross incompetence. The investigation resulted in the loss of his medical license. Uh, But maybe he was covering for someone and or maybe someone decided to uh, take out the trash, so to speak, themselves. And they needed someone to say it was a suicide to keep their nose clean. So I could my I think it's a very, very much a possible theory that maybe somebody in law enforcement didn't like Christopher Bush, but they didn't have maybe enough evidence to nab him for the um, for the the Oakland County child killings. Uh-huh. Yeah, but they were like, I'm not going to let this guy go out and kill another kid. So I'm just going to take care of him myself. Maybe. And then, and then they were like, Hey, you know. Uh, Dr. Uh, Sillery over at the medical examining office be like, I'm going to make this look like a suicide. I need you to back me up. Mm-hmm. Maybe I could even see his parents because they were not exactly the loving type. And I'm sure they were annoyed with the trouble that Christopher gave him. Yeah. Or, or gave them. Um, they're like, we're going to be out of the country. Maybe we have someone take care of him so that, you know, we aren't suspect because we were out of the country and maybe I, I, and like, he'll never tarnish our good name again. I I mean, that's a big reach though. I get, I get where you're coming from, but that's a really big reach. Like maybe they got tired of covering for their son and they're, and because there's such cold, people that they're just like uh maybe it's just best that we do away with him i could see it those are just my theories though (laughs) now the room itself where christopher's body had been found told a story as well a newspaper was found nearby open to the movie listings as if bush had been in the middle of making plans for the evening There is also much to be said about a pencil drawing of a boy that was found tacked to the wall of the bedroom. The drawing is clearly not done by a master of the craft, but it does bear a striking resemblance to the first victim, Mark Stebbins. In it, the boy is wearing a hooded sweatshirt and his eyes are shut and his mouth contorted as if he is screaming in pain. Oh, which honestly, it's like it's a kind of a creepy piece of art. Like, I don't know why you would want to like. Well, for someone like him that fantasized about kidnapping children and torturing them in their van. Yeah, I could definitely see this being the right piece of art for this particular person. Yes. Now, the sketch was initially hidden from the press, despite Oh, despite that this could possibly implicate Bush, uh, it may have depicted Mark in captivity and was kept as memento. Mm-hmm. But when uh, that went, but like when that drawing arrived in, like or was like 
put up in Christopher Bush's room is up for debate. As some claim it was planted after the fact. And one fan, um, and then on the other hand, a family member who was like a nephew of Christopher's claimed that the picture had been there long before the abduction of Stebbins ever occurred. So, you know, we've got some people claiming someone put it up afterwards, some people claiming that it had been there long before any of this whole mess happened. So either way, one thing that is certain is that the drawing was not made by Bush. Apparently it is known that he had no artistic talents and the likeness is simply too good to be drawn by him. Mm. So he couldn't draw himself so that's the only thing that we know for sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> With the death of Christopher Bush, we lost one of our best leads. Uh, there is the correlation that after his death, the Oakland County child killer seems to have stopped operating. But as we know, correlation does not always mean causation. And the closer you look at Christopher Bush, the bigger the picture gets, because once you start looking at the people he associated with, you'll see that there is an entire network of scumbags exploiting kids at this time. And with so much money and influence at play, it's hard to say who looks the most guilty. Uh huh. Now, the initial sexual con- misconduct allegations that had put Christopher Bush on the radar of authorities in the first place stemmed from an investigation into a place called Fox Island on Lake Michigan. uh, And the owner of it was named Frank Sheldon. The Fox Islands are isolated and wooded with the only way to or from there is by plane or boat. In the 1970s, Sheldon, the private owner of North Fox Island, ran a boys camp for troubled and at-risk youth. And while the kids were indeed exposed to nature, they were also subjected to sexual abuse and molestation. I've heard of this island. Yeah, it's, it's just incredibly messed up. Now, these encounters were frequently photographed or filmed and later distributed for profit to pedophile subscribers across the country. So it's basically like, oh, here I am bringing troubled young boys or, or like troubled or at-risk young boys to an isolated location where they can't escape. Mm-hmm. And then like, because they are troubled youth, when they come back home, who's going to believe them that if they, if they even do make any allegations, right. Uh, it It's like, wow, you just, set up like a child porn factory in the woods Mm -hmm. on this isolated island. Now, um, furthermore, wealthy associates of Sheldon could always pop in on their small private planes to take advantage of the children who were at the mercy of the adults for as long as they stayed on the island because there was no way out. Mm Mm-hmm. And in addition to the horrible violations Sheldon and his lot were committing against the kids, he was also making 
$1,250 per boy in government subsidies by calling his camp a child care facility. That is awful. I mean, like, the, the everything about this is awful, but the fact that he was making profit off of it. Oh, yeah, and that the government was paying him to do this is super messed up. He was getting money from the county, the state, and the federal government, um, and it was all tax-free because it was like a nonprofit. Uh, and so it was, and and it was like a quota system almost. Like, so the county would give him so much money per child, and then the state would give him so much money per child, and then same with the federal government. Um, which is why he was able to rake in so much money. And like, and this is 1970s money too. So mm-hmm. like $1,250 is no small amount, but it's it just pales in comparison to what the kind of money that he was making off of the pornography that he was he was sending out to his subscribers. Like they were willing to pay top dollar, I'm sure, for the content that he was creating. That's disgusting. It really is. It like, if you thought Christopher Bush was bad, here's somebody who's even more sick. Now, Frank Sheldon takes being a dirtbag to new heights with his scheme to traffic minors. Sheldon cultivated relationships through his charity work. Again, charity in quotation marks there. Uh, He sat on charity boards such as the Cranbrook Institute of Science, and he mailed out the pornography to generous donors who made tax-deductible contributions. Uh, And then uh, the the pornography would be in packets disguised as camp brochures. Like, he had this down. Yeah. His favorite boys would be showered with trips and given college trust funds. But the good times would not continue for Sheldon on Fox Island for long. Good. Yes, thank goodness. Uh, Pedophiles from the Detroit area that were getting busted by police oftentimes referenced Sheldon's pedophile paradise. And finally... It just had come up one too many times, and an official investigation was launched by Michigan State Police into the Fox Island operation. So basically, it's like these small-time guys were getting busted and busted and busted, and it's like, like where is all this um, child pornography coming from? And they were, they're like, yeah, there's this island where they, you know, where they do this. And yeah, I'm so, sure I'm sure they were given if they cooperated, I'm sure they were given some sort of like leniency. Likely. I mean, the probably the the prosecutor probably would want to get to the root of all this. Be like, if you can bust the people making the child pornography and exploiting the children, mm-hmm. um, you know, we could hopefully take out so many more people of like the underlings with them right and i mean obviously the point is to like save the children from being exploited in the first place Mm -hmm. so unfortunately though frank sheldon was tipped off just days ahead of the of a warrant being issued for his arrest 
and the slippery sleazeball managed to get away with his millions. But the investigation did shed some light on other shady characters. So Gerald Richards, uh, a gym teacher from St. Joseph Catholic Elementary School in Dexter, Michigan, was just such a character. He would often take young boys up to Fox Island, and he was listed as a director at the camp on brochures. He used a teenage boy referenced to as Michael F. as a camp counselor in order to create an air of legitimacy. What he was actually doing, though, was grooming the teenage boy to lure in other reluctant children and then create pornography from the encounters. So Richards and Sheldon were a perfect match when it came to organizing the camp. Sheldon had the high-end clientele and Richards, well, what did he have? I mean, I guess he must have had some kind of charm to him. Yeah, I was wondering that too. I was like, what brought these two together other than their disgusting interest in children yeah um but richards did have uh he had a magic show act which is just kind of adds to the like weird creepiness of his whole personality Uh uh-huh um so i guess he had to have some sort of talents like i mean if you can kind of distract or charm people with like your magic act and magicians and, can get like people to like you too. They're very charismatic. Yeah. So that must have been what he had going for him. I guess. Um, but when the police came knocking, it was actually Sheldon who did the disappearing act. And he left his former partner in crime holding the bag. Mm-hmm. While Richards was looking at hard time, Sheldon was, was on the beach in Antigua and then eventually settled in the Netherlands where he lived the rest of his days without facing justice. So Sheldon did die in the mid 1990s. That sucks. It, Not that he died. Yeah, the, the fact that he died living comfortably in the Netherlands. Yes. And it's so weird because this guy was like, he was on the state police's radar. He was on the FBI's radar and Apparently they tried to extradite him, but it just never worked out. And I, and, you know, I think of the Netherlands as being on good terms with the U S so I don't know how that works in, when it comes to um, like extradition policies. So, but Mm -hmm. I'm sure it's a very complicated process. Now, meanwhile, stateside, Richards was singing like a canary in the hopes of leniency for his punishment. He implicated Sheldon in the molestation of a boy in, uh, in his plane in March 1976, which was around the time that Mark Stebbins disappeared. Mm-hmm. He also let the state in on the tax scheme to profit off subsidies, as well as two shell companies that were set up as a sort of as sort of trusts, uh, one was called the Church of the New Revelation, and the other was the Oceanographic Living Institute. So these real kind of like vague BS kind of wishy washy sounding uh, shell corporations were set up. Okay. 
Um, and then there were even plans in the works to franchise these camps and establish similar compounds on both coasts. Thankfully that never happened, but still that just shows like how insatiable and evil these this person was who had the 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 um capability of just kind of like institutionalizing child molestation yeah um so known and newly discovered pedophiles were also being questioned about fox island and the web of those ensnared with the scandal ran far and wide all types of people were caught up in the organization, including an elementary school principal, a, a child social services employee, members of child welfare organizations, and even a police officer. With this dirty laundry coming out left and right, it is hard to think that any child could have been safe anywhere at, at the time. Uh-huh. This is probably where a lot of conspiracy theories come from, because here in Michigan in the 1970s, there really was an honest to goodness pedophile ring. And these were people and a lot of these people had power and money, um, including there is one allegation, too, from uh, one of Christopher Bush's associates that even uh, his father may have been into children that yeah there is an accusation that um one of christopher's associates uh like got children for his dad even so maybe the apple doesn't fall far from the tree Mm. although that's just an accusation i don't think that there's anything uh, that was for sure planned, but you know, it wouldn't, I wouldn't put it past this family because with their money, they were willing to throw that behind anyone who to shut them up. Right. Now Richards for his part in all of this, uh, he pled guilty and was sentenced to 20 years in prison. He ended up serving 10 And in the late 1980s, he was released to live with his mother, which, depending on their relationship, might have felt like prison. Right. Now, there is no question that Christopher Bush had connections to Frank Sheldon with his access to wealth and all of the clubs and privilege that came with it. But Bush wasn't just about hanging out with pedophile elites. He also had regular companions who were everyday Joes too. So remember Gregory Green that uh, was briefly mentioned earlier. He mm-hmm. was in his 20s in the, in the 1976, 1977 period. And uh, he was a bit directionless. At the time, he found himself kind of floating between California and Michigan before finally choosing to collude with Bush. Now, much like Sheldon and Richards on Fox Island, Green and Bush had a teenager that they used to bait other children. In 2008, this victim claimed that he was forced to perform sex acts with a young boy that he later believed to be Timothy King. Afterward, he stated the boy that he believed to be Timothy was handed over to another known pedophile, Ted Lamborghini. 
which I always want to read as Lamborghini. Yeah, I can. I get that. Uh, for years, he had kept his suspicions secret, fearing that he could be murdered next. I mean, that especially as a child, right? You like, and knowing what ended up happening to Timothy King, it's totally understandable that mm-hmm. you feared for your life. Now, Green had a a bit of a rap sheet before he teamed up with Bush. In California, he was on probation for sexual misconduct with a minor. But when he came to Michigan, he began engaging in relations with a 12-year-old he coached on a baseball team. The boy had been told that back in California, Green had choked a boy, presumably to death, who planned on turning him in. So it was basically like, hey, you snitch on me, I'm going to kill you. Right. Uh, Now, the truth was that Green had more than a dozen victims back in California that had been abused hundreds of times, including one boy that had been struck and smothered until he passed out. So this sounds totally within the realm of this case too. Uh-huh. So I guess the the boy had not been cooperating, so he struck him in the head and then like covered his nose and mouth until he was quiet. So Oh, sounds familiar. Mm-hmm. Now, during this incident where uh where the boy had passed out, uh, Green thought that he might have killed the boy and he dumped he dumped him at a hospital, uh, just kind of like right outside the hospital where he could be easily found like right away because he wasn't sure if he was dead or not. And he certainly wasn't going to... Um, check him into the emergency room or something. So just kind of did a quick dumped him off. Uh, Now, luckily, uh, this boy did survive. Uh, And after that incident, uh, Green spent time in a psychiatric hospital. Uh, And after that stay, he came to Michigan in 1975, where he got connected with Bush a mere six months before the Oakland County child killer murders began. So the coincidences keep adding up here. Mm-hmm. Now, Green had a history of violent molestations, including a near murder on the record. Uh, plus his description matched police composite sketches that were created from eyewitness accounts. Uh, especially from the Timothy King abduction. So one of the descriptions of a potential, like a a man who had been talking to Timothy King in the parking lot matched him like very well. Um, So was this actually a two-man operation with Bush in the car and Green nearby to seal the deal? Unfortunately, Green can't be asked because he died. He died while serving a life sentence for the molestations he committed in Michigan. When it comes down to it, Green definitely had the means and the temperament to commit these murders. I'd say so. And finally, there is one more name to be tied in with Bush and Green, and that is Vincent Gunnels. Vincent was one of the Bu- one of Bush's victims a teenager at the time, 
Uh, and he was being groomed for months before the murders began. So this is just crazy that it's like he had multiple plates spinning in the air at the same time, it seems, where uh-huh. he had multiple teenage boys like that he was actively working on grooming to help him obtain more boys. So gross. Now, Bush eventually was charged with um, with criminal sexual conduct for his violation of Gunnels, but the experience left him pretty traumatized and, and he was in and out of prison throughout his adulthood. But, is, but it is his connection to, to Bush that links him specifically to the murder of Christine Mihalik. Some hairs were recovered from Christine's body that did not belong to her. And as DNA technology progressed, they were able to use mitochondrial DNA to narrow the owner of that hair down to either Vincent Gunnels or someone in his family. Gunnels denies being present at Christine's imprisonment and murder, but if the body had been in Bush's car at any time, it's possible that the hair could have been transferred to the clothing in that way. Uh-huh. Uh, and speaking of hairs, they also found white animal hairs as well on Christine's body. And they were suspected to belong to a dog. And guess who happened to have a little white dog in the family? Christopher Bush. Now, while I believe that we have likely already mentioned the party or parties responsible, I think it's worth mentioning some of the curveball theories that are out there with some interesting possibilities. The first comes from an amateur sleuth named Helen Dagner. In 1992, Helen offered up a tip that a man only referred to in writing as John Uh, who was a former person of interest back in 1977, had confessed to her that he had been behind the child murders. Now, John lived in Alpena, uh, which is a town near S Lake, which which is where the Bush family had a vacation home. Okay. Apparently, John had been at the party where Mark Stebbins had last been seen, and some suspected that he left the party to go after the boy. John also lived near Christopher Bush, uh, and they were sons of auto executives and around the same age. So at the time in the 70s, um, or like like when the, the child murders were happening, they lived within sight of each other okay um so because they were uh like they had they're traveling the same circles like their parents work was in the same industry they lived in the same neighborhood they were bound to cross paths eventually but when questioned about bush um this john character he denied even knowing him even though they were neighbors in a close-knit community so this is like you know, it's like a neighborhood of like other rich people. And uh-huh. and it's like a small, like everybody kind of knows everybody. Like, yeah, like you don't know the person who lives just like a stone's throw away. Does not make sense. That's, it seems very suspicious. Now, John eventually fell off the person of interest list. 
But Dagner wasn't so sure. She developed a friendship with John that sometimes teetered on romantic. Uh, Both of them seemed to enjoy talking about darker topics like crime, and the conversation eventually turned to the Oakland County child killer case. John seemed to know a lot of insider knowledge about the case, and Helen just kind of let him talk. And after a while, she began to suspect that John might be the killer because of his seemingly perfect recall of the smallest details. The more involved she got, the more John seemed to divulge. He knew he knew clothing and personal items the victims had with them and drew detailed maps of the dump sites, stuff she had never seen printed or, and, and even stuff that she'd never seen printed in the newspapers. Then one day over coffee at the big boy restaurant in Alpena, he seemingly confessed. He said different cars were used each time which would be easy when your father is part of the auto industry. Yes. And that the children had been given manicures while in captivity, something only the killer could have known. Then she asked where he had purchased the chicken that he fed to Timothy King, to which he replied, oh, I cooked the chicken. Oh, so that's wrong. Yeah, so he, well, uh, the fact that he that it came out that way is just, it's just uh, seems like a weird detail. From there, he listed items from Jill Robinson's backpack, spoke of a house his father owned where he kept the kids and hinted at the existence of Polaroids of the crimes. Helen turned all of this information over to the police and the police took a closer look at John uh, as well as a, a DNA sample, but no match was found. And DNA doesn't lie. People no, do not. DNA DNA can't lie. Um, when John tried to claim that Helen was lying about him, he was surprised that a witness who was another, excuse me, uh, who was another diner in the restaurant overheard the conversation and reported it to the police. So here he had a totally unrelated, clean witness who had heard all the same things that Helen had heard. The unrelated witness supported Helen's story, but then again, the DNA evidence did not. And so John, although a very strange guy, did not appear to be the killer in question. Finally, there is the most bizarre wrinkle in the case involving the psychiatrist, Dr. Bruce Danto, who was mentioned briefly earlier in the episode. Yeah, I forgot about him. (laughs) Dr. Danto was frequently on TV for the latest analysis on the murders, which made him an easy target. Shortly after he um, shot to local stardom, he received a package with a bizarre letter. And this letter was a grammatical train wreck. So it claimed to be from the Oakland County child killer's roommate begging for help. Now the author claimed to know the real killer and uh, was a slave to him. It was a very weird situation. Okay, that's odd. 
He paints a picture of a Vietnam vet who returned from war with a few screws loose. And now he kills kids in America because he killed kids in Vietnam and he wants people to suffer like he suffered. Very strange kind of reasoning there, but mm-hmm. okay. Everything else has been strange about this. So why not? Why not add just one more thing? Right. Uh, now he goes on to ask for um, ask specifically for the doctor's help. Um, and he won't speak to anyone else but the doctor. Uh, and so he requested a meeting. And this whole setup was just really wild and crazy. He was like, plant this headline in the newspaper for Sunday and I'll know that you got my message and that you're willing to talk. Like, it was very, very strange. It was mm-hmm. like something from a spy movie. Um, the, the, the sender of the letter signed it, Alan. Uh, and so this mystery person is referred to as Alan. So Dr. Danto agreed to meet with the mysterious Alan, but the police had him wear a wire. So he teamed up with authorities. Uh, I mean, because you have to, it's like you have to pursue this just in case it is the real deal or in case this is somebody who's legitimately involved with a crime. Um, So they put in some resources So Dr. Danto agreed to meet with this mysterious Alan while he was wearing a wire. Now the meeting was set for the Pony Cart Bar, which is a gay establishment. uh, And it was for 9 p.m. the next day. An undercover cop was staked out at a table with a book posing as a college student to keep an eye on the doctor should anything go awry. Now, the doctor waited at the bar and, you know, talked to the bartender, just kind of hung out there. But there was no sign of Alan. At one point, a man in broken English approached the undercover detective and offered him a drink. The flustered detective turned down the offer and the man left. Now, Alan never showed that night and never contacted the doctor ever again after that. The theory is that the man offering the drink was Alan and that the undercover cop blew their cover because he hadn't done his research and didn't realize that it was a gay bar and he didn't fit in. Uh, So it tipped him off and he got spooked and never came forward again after that. So did they actually let the Oakland County child killers slip through their fingers or was it merely the ravings of a madman? Or worse yet, what if there was another crime that Alan had evidence of? Now we may, now we may never know the truth behind that one. Like, could you imagine if he was uh, talking about maybe not these specific crimes, but, Maybe some other crimes. Yeah, from like years ago or something. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot to look at here. Lots of victims, lots of suspects, and no real answers for sure. The book, The Kill Jar, doesn't make any promises. 
doesn't make any sweeping conclusions claiming to have solved the unsolved case, but I do think we have a likely answer. The physical evidence, like the hair samples, uh, seem to implicate Christopher Bush's involvement. And the fact that he had the means to buy himself out of most trouble in an ins- and an insatiable taste for the underage, I think that he's part of the team. But when it comes to who I think committed the killings, I think Gregory Green is a likely suspect. An FBI profiler suggests that the killer is smart but lacks formal education, did not come from money, was not a leader at work, and had a previous record of violence. Green checks all of these boxes. His close proximity to Bush ties in some of these loose ends, and he certainly had the physical strength to do it. And this is why I believe Green deserves the largest part of the blame for the killings. So we may not have a conclusive answer, but I can certainly say we know a lot more and we're closer than ever before to knowing the truth. And that is the story of the Oakland County child killer. Wow, that was a big one. Um, When you, I agree with you completely as far as the Bush and Green duo Mm -hmm. goes. I definitely, there's just way, way too much there. Um, I definitely think that they worked as a team. Um, the, the other people, you know, the, the doctor and the guy that had like the story with all the holes in it. Like, no, I don't, I don't think either of those did it. Um, the scary thing is though, like if it wasn't Bush and green, a lot of times if, serial killers go cold in one area like maybe over in uh oklahoma city maybe similar uh victims and same type of murders Mm -hmm. start to occur well and it's funny that you bring that up because they did mention that not long after uh this kind of case went cold it wasn't that long before um the atlanta child killer uh uh-huh, happened I know and I, I believe that was like the early 80s uh yes it was all um they were all young african-american boys mm-hmm. were so, being murdered down there and which is again one of those things that's kind of an interesting um coincidence but I don't think is necessarily like, oh, for sure. Like that's oh, the, no. the killer, like just moved on to a new city, city right. like that. Right. Um, but is uh, it's scary. And uh, I could definitely see why people would be afraid. Right. Like just let their kids be kids. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, good job. I think uh, if you can just, read the victims names again the four children i looked them up while we were doing the recording and they were just all such sweet looking kids they look like absolute darlings um yeah there there was mark stebbins was the first victim taken in 1976 
And then there was Jill Robinson. And then there's Christine Mihalik. And then the final victim, uh, final official victim was Timothy King. Um, yeah, I did all, see. Oh, I was just going to say all just sweet, bright, brimming with potential um, and just snatched from us snatched mm-hmm. from the world yeah they were such cute kids mm-hmm. um and i hate the fact that they were kept for who knows how many days before their final end mm-hmm. um they had to have been terrified whether it was one day three days it doesn't matter they were definitely terrified and the sexual abuse um component just really irks me too they are children it really adds a special kind of rage behind yeah like how much i hate the perpetrator of these killings yeah um sexual assault of any level on anybody is completely unacceptable but especially when it is a child Mm -hmm. that is a whole new level of evil and disgusting human being agreed now um i did use one more supplemental source in addition to the kill jar by j rubin appleman which i highly recommend i i feel there was so much going on in this book and in this story i feel like i i gave the kind of simplified version of it highly recommend reading this book um and also you get to hear the um the author's personal story in there which just adds like a, a really cool level of depth um to the the whole story definitely worth a read um and then i would also like to think on think um click on detroit.com which is like a local uh detroit area news site that helped me um fill in some of the um kind of normal facts and dates and stuff sure. like that so they were that was very helpful as well so there we go. Um, well, well done. That was um, a heavy case. Any case that inj- involves kids usually mm-hmm. is. Um, I wish there was a definite answer of who who was the perpetrator, but mm-hmm. I think we have a pretty good idea, and it's nice to know that they're no longer here. Right. Uh, it is a, a little bit comforting to know, I mean, especially with one of the, the suspects having died while in prison. Yes. Um, it's like, yep, that's right where they belong, mm-hmm. uh, not out in public. And um, whether I would really like to know who's responsible for Christopher Bush's death. Uh, that's one of those things that I'm I'm sure someone is going to take to the grave. Yeah. But I would just love to know if, you know, maybe a deathbed confession or something being like, yeah, we decided we had to take this guy out and, you know, before he hurt another child or right. something. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to speculate on that so yes it is well thank you all so much for listening yes um you can check out our instagram and facebook for the photos of our sweet little kids that were taken too soon um and also let us know any feedback questions comments and 
like, rate, and review us wherever you're listening. That really helps. Thank you so much. Well, again, thank you for listening. And until next time, bye. bye.